Just name pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Amos chapter number three. And uh, of course, we've got a potluck after the service tonight, so I'm going to try to move through this passage as quickly as I can, and uh, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, you're there in Amos 3, and uh, I want you to notice there in verse number 1, the Bible says, hear this word. And in Amos chapter number 3, for those of you taking notes as we've been traveling through the book of Amos together, in Amos chapter 3, we have a new section that begins in this book for the next three chapters. If you remember, Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2 was eight sermons by the prophet Amos directed at eight different nations. And in chapter 3, we begin a series of three sermons directed at the nation of, of Israel. And each one of these sermons begins with this phrase, hear this word. Notice there in Amos 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, hear this word, what the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel. And I want you to notice that this is directed towards the northern kingdom of Israel. And Amos is now going to zero in on the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. If you'll flip over to chapter 4 just real quickly, I'd like you to notice the second, the beginning of the second sermon. We'll look at this next week, Lord willing. Amos chapter 4 and verse 1. And I just want you to notice how it begins. Hear this word. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountains of Samaria. Samaria, of course, is the northern part of Israel, which oppress the poor and crush the needy. Thus, uh, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. Go to Amos chapter 5, just real quickly, look at verse 1. Here's the beginning of the third sermon in this section, directed at the nation of Israel. And notice how it begins. Hear ye this word, which I take up against you, even a lamentation. And notice against who, who it is directed against, O house of Israel. So we've got these three sermons in these three chapters. They begin with these uh, these words, the statement, hear this word. Go back to chapter number three, and I'd appreciate uh, your prayers, just in case you're wondering. I'm, I'm not sick. I've just got allergies. I feel like every year my allergies begin earlier and earlier, and uh, I'm sure it's, I don't know, I'm sure it's something, but Amos chapter three, uh, notice there verse one. Let me just, I, I've got an entire outline for this uh, sermon, and, and I, I want to try to move through this as quickly as I can, so let me just quickly kind of give you Walk through this outline, and if you're taking notes, then you can write this down. Uh, five points that, five ways, uh, five headings to maybe outline this uh, chapter. The first, if you're taking notes, in verses 1 and 2, I want you to notice that we see the privilege of God's people. The privilege of God's people. In verse 1, we see Amos directing a sermon towards the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. He says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, Notice what he says. He says, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. I want you to notice that God is emphasizing the fact that these people had a history with him and they had been highly blessed by him. He says, I've got a sermon. He said, I have something against you, the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, notice verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And God is bringing up the fact and he's highlighting the fact that he had a special relationship with the children of Israel, that this was a family 
which he brought up from the land of Egypt. And he says there in verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. They were a privileged people, and because of their privilege, they had a great advantage. Now keep your place there in Amos chapter 3. That's our text for tonight. But go with me if you would just real quickly to the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 9. And when you get to Romans, do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Romans chapter 9. I want you to notice that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament had a great advantage because of the fact that they were God's chosen people. They were given a great privilege. In Romans 9 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul highlights this when he says, who are Israelites, talking about the children of Israel. Notice what he says about them. He says, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blesses, God bless forever. Amen. Once you notice there that he highlights some of their advantages, the children of Israel. They were given the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. He also brings this up in Romans chapter number 3. Flip back to Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says this, What advantage then hath the Jew? Because if you remember in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's been talking about the fact that there's none that doeth uh, good, that we're all sinners. And now he brings up this idea, well, what, was there an advantage in, in being a Jew? He said, what advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? And then I want you to notice the answer that he gives in verse 2. He says, much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. I want you to notice that when the Bible highlights the advantage that the Old Testament uh, people of God had, the advantage that they had was that they had the Word of God, they had the ministry of God, they had the service of God, they had the covenants of God, they, they, they had access and knowledge of God. And we see that because of that knowledge, keep your place there in, in Romans, we're told that God is going to judge them. He says in Amos 3.2, you go to Luke if you would, real quickly, Luke chapter 12. If you go back from Romans, keep your place in Romans, but if you go back from Romans, you have Acts, John, then Luke. In Amos 3, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. So we see the privilege of God's people. They had a great advantage. And what I'm going to say right now is something that I've been saying. It keeps coming up in sermons over the last several weeks. And I feel like I keep going to Luke chapter 12. Uh, but I'm just going to keep bringing it up as much as it keeps coming up because I feel like maybe God wants us to learn this. And the idea is this. In the same way that the Old Testament people of God were highly privileged, they had a great advantage. In that same way, the New Testament people of God are also highly pri privileged and have a great advantage. It could be said of us that we've received the adoptions, we've received the covenants, we've received the service of God, we've received the oracles of God. And here's what you need to understand. When it comes to having great advantage with God, along with advantage comes accountability. And because the children of Israel had been given a great advantage, there was a great accountability that God was holding them to. But remember this, that God is no respecter of persons. And if He's going to hold them accountable for their advantage, He will hold you accountable, and He will hold me accountable for our advantage. 
Luke chapter 12 and verse 47. We've seen this verse several times over the last several weeks, but I'll just keep showing it to you. This is probably the best verse to highlight this idea that with great advantage comes great responsibility. With great advantage comes great accountability. Luke 12, 47, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Verse 48, Compare and contrast that to the guy in verse 48. In verse 47, it was a servant which knew his Lord's will and did not do anything with his Lord's will. He's going to be beaten with many stripes. Verse 48, but he that knew not and did commit such uh, things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. So why don't you notice, the servant who knew his Lord's will and didn't do what he was supposed to do was beaten with many stripes. And in verse 48, the servant who knew not, he's still held accountable, but God takes into consideration the amount of knowledge that they have. Here the Bible says that he shall be beaten with few stripes, and this is how God justifies it. Last part of verse 48, For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required, and unto whom men have committed much of them Uh, Of him they will ask the more. The Bible teaches that God will hold you accountable for the knowledge that you have. And if you're sitting here at Verity Baptist Church on a Wednesday night, you have been given a lot. You've been committed a lot. And this is an idea that young people need to get their hands around. And when you grow up in a church like this, and you grow up in the families, the type of families that come to this church, and you've been raised in Christianity, and you've been uh, exposed to the Word of God from a young age like Timothy, that from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, hey, God has given you a great advantage, but don't forget that God will hold you accountable for what you do with what you've been given. And here we see that the children of Israel, the prophet Amos begins by speaking about the privilege of God's people. He says, go back to Amos 3 if you would, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. We see in verses 1 and 2 there, the uh, privilege of God's people. But I'd like you to notice in verses 3 through 6, in verses 1 and 2, we see the privilege of God's people. In verses 3 through 6, we see the logic of God's punishment. I want you to understand that God is obviously a logical God. In Isaiah, the Bible says, God says, let us reason together, saith the Lord. God is a reasonable God. He's a logical God. And what Amos is going to do in the next three verses, is give the logic of God's punishment because he wants those who are going to receive the judgment of God to understand that they should have seen this coming, that they should, have under, that they should understand why it's coming, and it's a very logical conclusion that God comes to. Now, what we see in Amos chapter uh, 3, verses 3 through 6, is a very well-known part of Scripture from the book of Amos. And what Amos does is he asks a series of questions. He asks seven logical questions. And I want you to notice that the first six questions in this series of questions have a very obvious answer. The seventh question has less of an obvious answer. And what Amos is doing is he's asking six questions 
that are very obvious, and the answer to the question is no. And what he's doing is he's trying to get his audience to answer the questions in their own minds and heart. No, 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 no. To obvious questions. So they, when they get to the seventh question, which is a little bit more of a complex question, they would understand, well, if the answer to every question leading up to this is no, then the answer to question number seven is probably no. So let's look at the questions real quickly. Notice question number one in verse there, number three. Again, probably the most famous verse in the book of Amos. Amos chapter three and verse three. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Can two walk together? Amos asks, except they be agreed? And the answer is no. If, if, if they're walking together, it's because they agree. If they're not in agreement, they can't walk together. Two cannot walk together except they be agreed. Now, if you kept your place in Romans, go with me, if you would, from Romans to 2 Corinthians. Romans, past Romans, you got 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of these questions, but I do want to spend some time on this one. This is probably the most famous of all the questions. Can two walk together except they be agreed? This is a concept in Scripture having to do with fellowship and separation. The idea is this, that you can only walk with those which you are in agreement with. In the New Testament, Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You say, why would Paul say, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? Here's why. Because can two walk together except they be agreed? You can't walk, you can't fellowship, you can't work with, you can't work alongside somebody unless you're in agreement with them, unless you're heading in the same direction, unless you're working towards the same goal. It's not going to work. So Paul says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? He said, can righteousness and unrighteousness walk together? The answer is no. Why? Because they're not in agreement. And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And here's the application and the conclusion. When you understand that two cannot walk together except they be agreed, the answer then is this, verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. You say, why? Why separation? And in case you're not getting it, the application here is that your best buddies shouldn't be a bunch of drunkards. You say, why? Because can two walk together except they be agreed? That's why you young men shouldn't be dating girls that are not saved. You say, why? Because can two walk together except they be agreed? Oftentimes people look at me and Pastor Anderson and both of us were married at, uh, got married at young ages and both of us uh, got our wives saved. But let me remind you, we got them saved before we dated them. <laughs> they started coming to church before we dated them. They became soul winners before we... Look, we, we, we didn't go date some unsaved girl. You say, why? Because can two walk together except they be agreed? 
I'm just saying the people you're going to choose in life to walk down the road with, to walk down life with, you better make sure that you're in agreement. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be kind to the co-workers out in the secular world. I'm not saying you shouldn't be kind to your neighbors or kind to your uh, unsafe family. I think you should be. But your best friends, the people you spent the most time with, the people you fellowship with, better be in agreement with you. Because two cannot walk together except they be agreed, is the point that Amos is making. So if you're walking together, if you're fellowshipping with someone that is an unbeliever or that is worldly or that's not right with God, what that tells us is there's an agreement there. Now, if they're not getting right with God, then you must be getting wrong with God. Because the Bible says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So we see the first question. It's a, the answer is a No. Can two walk together except they be agreed? No. If they're walking together, they are agreed. By the way, that's why in our church we need to have agreement and unity. Amen. And I, I, I am not and I've never been this guy that says that you have to believe everything that I believe and you have to you, you know, follow just every little thing that I say. Uh, I, I allow people to have freedom. But let me tell you something. There are some things that you need to just get on board with. There are some major things in our church that we can't walk together if we're not agreed. Now, you might have a thought about this or thought about that. Let me tell you something. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to soul winning, when it comes to scripture, when it comes to the King James Bible, hey, we better be agreed. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand. So can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is an obvious no. If they're walking together, it's because they are Agreed. That's the first question. Go back to Amos, if you would. Then I want you to notice the next several questions. Question two is in verse four. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? And the answer is no. A lion's not going to roar. A lion is just a bigger version of the cat you've got at home. They meow and make a, a lot of noise when they've got food or when they're playing with something. And it, what Amos is saying is, if you hear a lion roaring, there's a reason why he's roaring. Well, a lion's not just going to roar for no reason. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? And the answer is no. If a lion is roaring, it's for a reason. If a lion is roaring, it's because he's taking prey. Notice the third question there in verse 4. Will a young lion cry out, of his den if he have taken nothing? Pretty much the same question. And the answer is no. If a young lion is crying out, it's because he's taken something. It's because he's caught something. Notice the fourth question there in verse 5. Can a bird... And, and it gets, you know, Amos is just being kind of, I think, a little bit of a jerk here. Because his questions get so ridiculous. You know, when you start with, can two walk together except they be agreed? Maybe you have to think about that for a second. If you think about it, and you just think of it logically, you think, no, you know, if they're walking together, uh, they're agreed. Will a lion roar? If he's caught no prey, you're like, well, I don't know, do, do lions roar? Well, actually, no, let me Google that. No, uh, he, if, if the lion's roaring, he's it's probably for a reason. But then he just gets silly. Verse 5, can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Now, the word snare means trap. 
And the word jinn means trap. It's just two synonyms for the same thing. Can a bird fall in a snare? Can a bird fall into a trap upon the earth if there is no trap for him? And the answer is obviously no. Amos, you think, are we stu- you think we're stupid? If he falls into a trap, then obviously somebody set a trap. You can't fall into a trap that nobody set. Can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where no jinn is for him? And the answer is no. If a bird falls into a trap, it's because there was a trap laid for it. Notice the fifth question in verse 5. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? If you have a guy who is maybe a trapper and he's got some traps out in the field and he's got them set up, he's not, he's not going to grab the trap and take it out of its spot if it hasn't caught something. If, if that thing is closed and it's caught an animal, then yeah, he's going to pick up the trap and the animal and he's going to do what he's going to do. But if he goes to check his trap and they're still open and there's no animal in it, he's just going to leave it alone. And, and Amos is asking the question, he says, Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have nothing at all? And again, a, a snare is a type of trap or type of device to catch an animal. And the answer is no. If someone takes up their trap, it's because something is in it. Otherwise, they would just leave it alone in hopes that we will catch something else. Verse 6. Verse 6, we have the sixth question. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? And blowing of a trumpet would be an alarm. If you heard a trumpet blowing in the city, you would think that there's an invasion underway, that we are under attack. And Amos asked the question, is somebody going to blow a trumpet and people not be afraid? And again, the answer is no. If the trumpet or the alarm sounds, people are going to be afraid. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? And I want you to notice that he asked this, this series of questions. Can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is no, if they're walking together, it's because they've agreed. Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? No, if a lion's roaring, it's because he's got prey. Will a young lion cry out in his den if he has taken nothing? No, he's crying out, he's probably taking something. Can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? No, if he's caught by a snare, someone set the snare. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have uh, taken nothing at all? No, if you're, if you're taking your trap your snare out is because you caught something. Otherwise, you're going to leave it there in hopes that it'll catch something in the future till a trumpet be blown in the city and the people will not be afraid. No, Amos. The answer is no. If a trumpet, if the alarm goes off, people are going to be afraid. And then here's the seventh question. And the seventh question is not as maybe clear to some people, which is why Amos is asking these no, no, no. Just like in soul winning or in sales, we, uh, they teach you to get, get the person saying yes, get them agreeing with you. We teach that in soul winning too. Get them agreeing with you. He's getting them to say no, 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 no. So that when they get to question number seven, they'll, want, they'll understand what the response is. Notice the seventh question there in verse six. Last part of verse six. Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it. You say, what does that mean? Well, if you go back to the previous six questions and you realize the answer is no. No, if X, Y, and Z is happening, it's happening for a reason. He's asking, shall there be evil in a city and the Lord has not done it? And the answer to the question, which may be counterintuitive to some people, is this. No, 
If there is evil in the city, the Lord has done it. And what the Bible is teaching here and what Amos is telling them is that evil is about to come upon you, northern kingdom of Israel. And I want you to understand that if evil comes, the Lord has done it. If evil comes, it is the Lord who brought that upon you. Now the reason that this is confusing to some people, go to Isaiah if you would, Isaiah 45. You're there in Amos, if you go backwards, you'll go past the book of Joel, Hosea, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Jeremiah, and then the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 45. Sometimes people get confused by this and they say, well, is Amos saying that the Lord does evil? And the answer to that question is yes. Isaiah 45 and verse 7, Isaiah 45, 7 says this. This is God speaking. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. The Bible says that God creates evil. Go to Jonah chapter 3, if you would. If, if, you're in, if you go back to Amos, after Amos you have Obadiah, then Jonah. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 10. In Jonah 3.10, the Bible says, And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God, the, 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 the people of Nineveh, turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil, repented of the evil that He had said that He would do unto them, and He did it not. He did what not? The evil that He said He was going to do. So I want you to understand that the Bible teaches that God is the source of both good and evil, or God can be a source of of both good and evil. And people often don't understand this or have a problem with this. Go back to Amos. Because most people think that evil is sin. But God does not sin. God is not the source of sin. God never sins. But God does do evil. God is the source of both good and evil. So when you have a problem like this, where the Bible is saying something that goes against what you think, here's where you've got to decide, I'm a Baptist, and you've got to decide, I'm going to go with the Bible, not my preconceived idea. If there is a contradiction between the Bible and my intelligence, there must be something wrong with my intelligence, not the Bible. And here's the answer to the question. In the Bible, the word evil does not mean sin. In the Bible, the word evil means to hurt or to damage. So in the Bible, the word evil, though sometimes, please understand this, sometimes the word evil is used in the context of sin, it does not always apply to sin. Because in the Bible, and this is just a way to help you understand this, all sin is evil, but not all evil is sin. Now because sin, because, sin, because evil means to hurt or to damage, and all sin hurts and damages, all sin is evil. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's hurting someone, that's damaging somebody. So all sin is evil. So if you find a verse that makes it sound like something sinful and it refers to it as evil, there's nothing wrong with that because all sin is evil because evil means to hurt and damage. But here's what you need to understand, that there are times that you can hurt and damage something or someone and you've not sinned. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? If somebody breaks into your house and they're trying to rob you and in the process of robbing you, they injure you or kill you, they have sinned and their sin was evil because their sin hurt you or damaged you. However, if somebody breaks into one of the church members of Verity Baptist Church and they, get found, and, they, and they find themselves in front of a homeowner with several guns and that you know, thief goes out to pull out a gun and gets shot and killed, well, that homeowner has done evil because he hurt and damaged that bad person. But that homeowner has not sinned. Now, he may be in trouble with the, <laughs> with the police because they're going to arrest you. If you shoot anybody, they're going to arrest you, whether you should have or not. Just know that. The point is this. You could do evil and not sin. So when the Bible says that God does evil, yes, he does do evil because God will sometimes bring his wrath, bring his judgment, destroy and harm, but he's not sinning. And God is telling the children of Israel, I'm about to bring a lot of evil upon you. I'm about to bring a lot of damage and destruction upon you. He says, Amos says, if, if there's evil in the city, don't you think the Lord has done it? And the answer, uh, you know, the answer is yes. Because God does evil. Go, go to Amos chapter 3. But does God sin? The answer is no. So in the Bible, all sin is evil, but not all evil. Is sin. Then in verses 7 and 8, in verses 1 and 2, we saw the privilege of God's people. In verses 3 to 6, we saw the logic of God's punishment. In verses 7 and 8, we see the warning of God's prophet. Notice in verse 7, he says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And what Amos is stating here, he's saying that God has revealed his coming judgment to the prophets to warn the people. That God has revealed what he's going to do to the children of Israel, to Amos and to other prophets that were his contemporaries, that they might warn the people. Notice verse 8. Does this sound familiar to the questions that Amos was asking? Now, before Amos was asking, he was asking it as a question. Will a lion roar if he have taken nothing? Now Amos is making a statement, verse 8. The lion hath roared. He says, the lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? And the point that Amos is making, and this verse is actually the theme verse of our Red Hot Preaching Conference. It's the verse that we put on all the t-shirts and all of that. The point that Amos is making is this, because remember in verse 4 he says, Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? And he asks a question. And the answer to the question is no. If the lion is roaring, then he's taking a prey. Now Amos is making the application and saying, well, let me let you in on a little secret. The lion hath roared. And he's roared for a reason. He's taken a prey and it's you. The lion hath roared. He says, who will not fear? And then he says, the Lord God hath spoken. And who can but prophesy? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, don't get mad at me. Amos is saying, don't, don't kill the messenger. He said, the Lord God hath spoken. 
The message is God's. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord God has spoken. He says, who can but prophesy? He said, look, I, I, can, I can only prophesy what God has spoken. Balaam heard, uh, learned that the hard way. And what he's telling the people is, look, God has spoken. I am just prophesying to you what God has spoken. And you know what I want to say to Verity Baptist Church, whenever I step on your toes or get on your uh, pet sin or, or, or correct you, and, and half the time I don't even know that, how, what you're into, just to let you in on a little secret. I know some of you guys think I spend my whole week just following you around, <laughs> looking, looking to see what I can preach against, but that's not true. You say, well, every time I come, you say, you preach these, this whole judgment series, you've been preaching, I've been doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I know, everyone has. That's why I'm preaching it. And if you're like, well, it seems like it's always directed at me. Hey, that's the Holy Spirit, and that's a guilty conscience. Maybe get right with God. You know, if you always feel bad at the sermons, maybe it's because you're always wrong. There's two ways to take a look. When I preach on soul winning, I get up and say, hey, you ought to be a soul winner. You know, if you're a soul winner, you're like, amen. If you're not a soul winner, you're like, oh, me. (laughs) Well, how do you fix it? Become a soul winner. Just get on the right stuff of the word of God, and then you'll be the one saying amen. (laughs) The Lord Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? Go back to Amos 3, look at verse 9. So in verses 1 and 2, we saw the privilege of God's people. Verses 3 to 6, we saw the logic of God's punishment. Verses 7 to 8, we saw the warning of God's prophet. In verses 9 and 10, we see the equity of God's publishing. I want you to notice, and and, and Amos uses the word there in verse 9, publish. And what Amos is telling the northern kingdom of Israel is that when God brings his judgment, it will be public. He says, publish in the places of Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the major cities of the Philistines. And in the palaces of the land of Egypt. And I just want you to to consider that these two places, Ashdod, or the Philistines, and Egypt, these are two locations in the Bible known for their cruelty. The Philistines were just bad people. Of course, if you remember, the most famous Philistine is Goliath. The Egyptians, they enslaved the people of God. And they had much cruelty against them. And God is now telling the children of Israel, this is, we're far into the timeline of the biblical history. And he's telling the children of Israel, I'm going to bring the people of Ashdod, I'm going to bring the Philistines, I'm going to bring the Egyptians, and say, verse 9, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. Samaria, of course, is a northern part of Israel, and behold, the great tumult, that word means violence or commotion, in the midst thereof, and the oppressed, the word oppressed means people burdened with cruelty and injustice in the midst thereof. And here's what the Bible is saying, because remember the, the theme of the book of Amos, which is really interesting to me because I began a Sunday morning sermon series on judgment and justice. And then we began the book of Amos at the same time. And I'd like to take credit for this, but I really didn't do it on purpose. It was just the Holy Spirit. But the theme of the book of Amos is justice, equity, that it matters how we treat people. And here God is saying, I'm going to bring these heathen nations 
the Philistines and the Egyptians who are known for their cruelty, and I'm not going to have them witness and testify against you. God says, publish in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt. Notice how he brings two witnesses. And say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumult in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. God says, I'm going to bring the heathen nations to, to, to witness and to testify and to agree to even Israel's cruelty. Here's what he's saying. The Egyptians who enslaved people and treated them wrongly are going to come to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and they're going to say, wow, that's really bad. They're going to agree on the extreme cruelty and oppression of the nation of Israel. Even the heathen nations are going to agree that Israel was cruel. And God is going to do this to justify His punishment. They had developed a culture of cruelty. Amos chapter 3 and verse 10, notice what He says. For they know not to do right. That's a a striking statement. You know, an, an area, a geographic area can develop a culture both positive and negative. And what God is saying about these people is that they know not to do right. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. He said they they have developed this, this culture of cruelty. They don't even know how to do right. And look, this is this is where we're getting to in the United States of America. Where I get, I get up to preach and I'm like, look, I, look, I know this is pretty common sense. I'm just going to say this because it's what the Bible says. I think everybody's trying. And then I preach these sermons and then I'm just getting emails and text messages and church people just, and God bless you. I'm not mad at you, but just people say, I didn't know that. I think that's so, really? You didn't know that you should not talk bad about people behind their backs? For they know not to do right. And I'm not, I'm not upset I'm with you. I'm, I'm just saying it, it's interesting that we have to go back. And this is why we as preachers, sometimes we battle this because we man, do I really need to say this? I mean, I think everybody knows this. And then you preach it. It's like, no. <laughs> the culture could become a bad culture. By the way, a church's culture can become a bad culture. This is one thing that I feel like I'm constantly fighting, not because of problem. And look, sometimes people hear me preach like this and they think like, oh, there's all these problems at Mary Baptist Church. And, and here's the thing, there's not. There's not major problems at Mary Baptist Church precisely because I preach the sermons. Because I have decided that if there's anybody who's going to influence the culture of Verity Baptist Church, it's going to be me through the preaching of the Word of God. And I'm not going to allow our church to develop this culture of cliques and, and people divided against each other and fighting against each other and gossiping against each other. You can try it, but you're going to go to war with me. And you might have a lot of time to make a lot of phone calls, but I get to preach for an hour three times a week. And I'm going to use every minute of that to make sure that this church has the right culture of kindness and soul winning and compassion and be kind to each other and loving each other. You say, why? Why do you care so much that we get along? Because can two walk together except they be agreed? I don't, honestly, I I do, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I care about you. 
But I'll be very honest with you. I don't necessarily need you to just be the greatest Christian ever. But if I need you, what I need you to do is to be a soul winner in this church. And that requires you getting all this other stuff right. I love you and I want you to get it all right anyway. But I'm going to help you get a bunch of this other stuff right. Because we need to get to work. And what I've learned is that two can't walk together if they're not agreed. So I'm going to help you get agreed. Because we don't want this culture for they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence. Notice the theme, violence and robbery in their palaces. Okay, verses 11 through 15. We've got to finish this thing up. Verses 1 and 2, the privilege of God's people. Verses 3 to 6, the logic of God's punishment. Verses 7 through 8, the warning of God's prophet. Verses 9 through 10, the equity of God's publishing. And then verses 11 through 15, the accuracy of God's prophecy. Notice verse 11. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land. God foretells that there's going to be enemies that are going to surround the land, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. The word spoiled means plundered or pillaged. Verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth the lion's, uh, out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. And that's a very descriptive verse there. I really like it because it really puts an image in your mind. Verse 12, Thus saith the Lord, As a shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria. And he's not just being descriptive, he's making a reference to the Old Testament law of Moses. And let me just share that with you real quickly, and we'll finish up. Go to Exodus 22, if you would. Exodus 22, second book in the Old Testament. Should be fairly easy to find. Genesis, Exodus, Exodus 22. I believe that Amos is alluding to an Old Testament law. And what God is teaching here in verse 11 is that the destruction of the nation of Israel would be complete. An adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Their destruction would be complete. And then in verse 12, when he says, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria. Here he's he's teaching that their destruction would not be God's fault. What the prophet is communicating is that when this happens to the children of Israel, they will have nobody to blame but themselves. And that God cannot be held responsible for the evil that he has brought and that he has allowed because the responsibility should be laid at the feet of the people whom God brought destruction to. And here's where the imagery comes in. Exodus 22 and verse 10. Exodus 22, 10 says, If a man deliver unto his neighbor an ass or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep and it die or be hurt or driven away, no man seeing it, then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods and the owner of it shall accept thereof and he shall not make it good. So simply, this is just a principle of justice. And what he's saying is that if somebody asks somebody, their neighbor, to watch their ass or ox or sheep or beast 
keep it. Maybe they were going on a trip or they have to be away. And he's asking someone to look over it and it die or be hurt or driven away and no man seeing it. So there's no witnesses to say, here's what happened and here's what, how, how it went. Then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's good. So they're going to take an oath and he's going to say, look, I didn't, I, I didn't kill your cattle and eat it. I didn't throw a party while you were gone. I don't know what happened. No, nobody saw it, but, but they're gone. That's what he's teaching him. Look at verse 12. And if it be stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. Because look, you have to take responsibility. If you borrow somebody's stuff and you break it, you should pay for it. That's what the Bible's teaching. Verse 13. If it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it for a witness, bring it for witness, and he shall not make uh, good that which was torn. So here's what I want you to notice in verse 13. If it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it for witness, and he shall not make good that which was torn. So here's what the Bible is teaching. Somebody comes and asks you or me to watch their whatever, and the animal goes missing, but when, when he goes to look for it, he, he finds an ear or a leg or something like that, then he could bring that as a witness and say, look, I, I, didn't, I didn't eat your animal. A, a wolf must have got it or a predator must have got it. And here's the proof. Verse 13, if it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it for a witness and he shall not make good that which was torn. He doesn't have to pay for the damaged goods if he can prove, I didn't damage it, I didn't hurt it, I did everything I was supposed to do. A wolf must have got it, a lion must have got it. Uh, look, here's the ear and here's the leg and here's... Here's the pieces that were scattered. That's what the Old Testament law said. What Amos is saying, go back to Amos chapter 3, verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria. God is saying, when you are destroyed by the Assyrians, when the judgment of God comes upon your nation because of your cruelty and your lack of integrity and your lack of character, God says, I'm going to just be standing there with an ear and a leg saying, wasn't my fault. You have only yourself to blame for this. As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out and dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and Damascus in a couch. Look at verse 13. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel, upon him I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and, the, and fall to the ground, and I will smite the winter house and the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Once you notice that God, here Amos ends by making the point that these people are cruel. They're being wrong. We've seen in other chapters that they've wronged the poor. They've taken advantage of the poor. But notice that these people are rich. I will smite the winter house and the summer house. You know what you are when you have a house that you winter in and a house that you summer in? You're rich. The houses of ivory, I don't know how much that costs, but I would imagine that costs a pretty penny. He says, the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. 
And here's the application for us. Is that the United States of America is the most prosperous nation on this earth. And our riches and our economy and our wealth has made us proud people, proud, arrogant people. And we think that because we have a, a summer house and a winter house, because we've got toys and we've got technology, because we've got everything that everyone in the world would want, that that somehow makes us better or somehow makes us uh, immutable. But God will judge. And and And... God is no respecter of persons. And here's all I'm saying is that God is not, he doesn't look down at the United States of America and think to himself, man, they've got it put, they got it put together. Look at that. God says, I don't care about your winter house or your summer house. I don't care about your ivory house. You can call it the White House if you want. I don't care. The great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. And what we need to remember is that when God punishes, and God will punish, Nations cannot be judged in the next world. They must be judged in this world. When God punishes, we will have no one to blame but ourselves. God will be standing there with two legs and a piece of an ear saying, it's not my fault. Because when the lion roars, he roars for a reason. And God is warning the children of Israel, and I believe that this could be a warning for us today. It matters how you treat people. It matters that you don't take advantage of people. It matters that you're not cruel to people. It matters that you're not mean to people. It matters that you don't gossip about people. It matters that you're just and righteous in your actions. Because God is the ultimate judge. Amen. And the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this chapter. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn from the book of Amos. This prophet, unlike maybe any other prophet in the Bible, just chapter after chapter just keeps drumming the same, just keeps hitting the same drum, and it's, it's that it matters how we treat each other. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be just, to have judgment and discernment, to be kind, to love our neighbors ourselves, to treat people the way we'd like to be treated, to be fair, to have equity. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a church that no matter what the world's doing, that we would at least have the right culture here. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to have Brother Moses come up and lead us in a final song. I just want to say again, thank you very much uh, to all of you who took part in preparing for the pop.